talked about your life story, and your life story begins when Jesus invaded your life. Cherry picked you out of a crowd. He spoke these words into your life, rise and shine. Get up from your present condition and walk with me. We're going to take a look at that this morning. Hopefully this morning when you got up, someone shook you up and said, it's time to rise and it's time to shine. You were snug as a bug in a rug, warm. You knew it rained last night. And getting up this morning was an opportunity. And I'm glad you're here. So we're going to rise and shine this morning as we rise and stand in honor of God's word. Let me invite you to do that as we take a look at John chapter 5. It's here in John chapter 5 that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see the Apostle John changing now, a transition in the ministry of Jesus. He's coming to Jerusalem, and uh, he is about to take his message to a place that he knows that he is not going to be received well and a place in which they're going to reject primarily his message. Up until now... He's had a a bunch of uh, thrill seekers, a bunch of people that want to be fed, and they're very self-centered, they're very ego-driven, self-centric, and now he's about to go to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to encounter some difficulty. And it's here that we learn that Jesus, in confronting his critics, gives some interesting insight into those of us who are disciples. Disciples follow in the footprints of Christ. It's more than just something we say or claim. It's how we live. It's what we do. We follow hard after Jesus. And Jesus gives us a a model this morning in John 5. He is a worker. He is about his father's business. And as disciples, we too are to join Jesus in his activity and to follow in his footsteps and join the father in our father's business. Let's read John chapter 5, verse 17. We'll skip verse 18 and read 19 and 20. Jesus says to his critics, my father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege and for the joy that's ours to stand in honor of your word. Uh, Join us in this time of opening your word. I pray that your spirit would just prevail in this place and you would freely move among us as you move through the teaching and preaching of your word. Only you can do that. It's to plant seeds, to grow our faith, to give us understanding, and to take us from this point so that we can leave this place this morning having been transformed by your spirit through the teaching and preaching of your word. So use this time to edify your son and to equip us as your saints, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As I mentioned earlier, there's a transition in the gospel account of John where we see that, that uh, Jesus is informing us that he is about his father's business. He's about to face some critics. God has been actively working in a man's life, and he has brought Jesus to Jerusalem to uh, encounter this man in his condition. And in this condition and with this encounter, there are some critics who, who rise up and who challenged Jesus in regard to that which he has done. These people are not receiving the ministry or the message of Jesus. They are completely rejecting his claims. 
And so we too, as we reflect upon the activity of God, we must then come to terms with our own reception, our own receptivity of the activity of God. You know, there are some times, I think, when God is actively working in our hearts, in our lives, in our condition, in our circumstance, where we then have to make the decision, am I receptive of this or am I not? And then once we come to terms with our receptivity of what he is doing, we must then respond appropriately, join Jesus as he joins the Father in what he is doing so that we can then go with him. And that's what happens here in this text. So I want to take a look at the activity of Jesus in this passage as he is confronted with a man and then confronted with him critics who are not receptive at all to what Jesus is doing as he joins the Father. Now, first of all, we see Christ's activity described for us in John 5, verse 1. Take a look at the passage with with me. Christ's activity, first of all, he realizes this man's condition. He recognizes and realizes that the man that he's about to encounter is a man who has a condition that has predetermined before he arrives. It is a condition that is brought about because of personal sin. Now, the personal sin that he has done a violation of the standard, the precepts, and the laws of God have brought about a circumstance or a condition into his life that has made him and placed him where he is. It's a condition that God is aware of. It's a condition that Christ is also pre-aware of because we see divine knowledge in this encounter between Jesus and this man. And his condition is simply that. He is a sinner. That's his condition. Now, we are going to see that he has a physical condition, but the physical condition is a result of personal sin. Now, not all disease is a result of sin. I don't know if you know it or not, but I stood over there to stay away from everybody, kind of, because I've been sick for the last two weeks. I can't get over it. Well, I hope it's not because of personal sin. It's because of fellowship. I said it's because of fellowship. It's because of your sin. I've been infected. No, I'm just kidding. But, but uh, you know, not all disease is a result or because of sin. But there are some sins that result in circumstances or conditions that are, are, are from God because of the infraction of that sin. And this man's condition is basically simply solely because of his personal sin. And because of that, he finds himself in this condition and in this place. Let's take a look at John 5.1, and let's see how Jesus realizes this man's condition. Verse 1 said, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Up until now, Jesus has primarily been in Galilee, and there's a reason for that. Galilee is predominantly pretty much receptive of the ministry and the message of Christ. They're very receptive there. Now, you would have thought that Jerusalem would have been the place of greater receptivity because that is the capital, it is the religious center of, of Israel. The temple is there. Jesus is the son of God. The temple contains the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. She would have thought that Jerusalem would have been the place of greater receptivity, but it wasn't. And so Jesus has primarily spent most of his time in Galilee. Now, on occasion, he has ventured to Jerusalem, and he does so today. And he's well aware that as he enters into Jerusalem, that more than likely there's not going to be the receptivity that he had in Galilee. 
And so he's, he, he enters into Jerusalem by, uh, by, uh, by the northwest corner of the city. It's the northwest corner of where the temple is located. And as he's making his way toward the northwest side of the city, he is getting close to what they call a small gate, a sheep gate. It's a narrow gate. And as he approaches that small entrance, there happens to be, as we're going to learn, a pool that is there. Notice verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which simply means the word Bethesda. Bethesda simply means a, a house of mercy or a house of kindness, which was five, which has five roofed colonnades. Here we have a pool. And in this pool, it is believed that uh, an angel is going to come and dip his finger in the pool. And when he does, he's going to stir the waters. And the first one that, that enters into the pool is going to be healed of whatever disease, whatever infirmity they have. I think it's superstition. It's similar to the superstition that many people in Wichita have, have bought into. It's a lie that you can go down to the casino down here and spend your money and you're going to walk away a millionaire. That's a lie straight from hell. Those lights come on for a reason. The carpet and all the, 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 the stuff that's there is for a reason. They're there to take your money. They're not there to give you money. They're there to take it. Now, you can believe that they're there to give you money, but you're very naive And and we need to talk outside in the back. That's being very naive. Now, for whatever reason, there was a group of people, as we see in verse 3, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Here we have a group of people that are gathered around the pool, and the group of people that are gathered around the pool is a very large gathering. It's a crowd. Or you might use the word multitude to describe the immensity or the enormity of the crowd that is there. It's a very large crowd. Why? Because all the people in the region have come believing that, that when the angel stirs the water, they can receive healing. So they're there to be cured. They have tried all the remedies, all the medications, seen all the experts. They, there's no condition that, that they have that can be cured by man. So they're looking for this superstitious thing, believing that this pool, when stirred by the finger of an angel, will cure them of their disease. So they are gathered there. In this fellowship of, of, notice it says, invalids, handicapped. Some are blind, some are lame, some are paralyzed, some are all three. And they're there. And so we see this large gathering of people. It's interesting to me that as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he goes to the first place in Jerusalem. In other words, he goes to the hospital. He goes to where the, the lame and the, the blind and the paralyzed and, and, and the invalids are. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, could have gone anywhere to a palace or uh, to a party or to the most prestigious, you know, Hilton Hotel or whatever, but he makes his way into Jerusalem, and as he does, he goes to where these people are in need, and they need a cure. Remember we talked about last week when Jesus was dealing with the self-righteous, and he said, a physician comes to what? comes with a cure and seeks out who? The diseased, right? So Jesus is there, not by accident, not by coincidence, by by his own initiative. He is there intentionally, purposefully making his way to the north 
west area of Jerusalem coming across this band, this fellowship of people who are, who are invalids. They are blind, they are lame, they are paralyzed, they are diseased. Now, notice what happens in verse 5. One man out of all the crowd, out of the multitude is there. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. There's a, a man that is singled out in the text by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the penmanship of the Apostle John, but also in the healing ministry of Jesus. There's a single man that is about to have an encounter with God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's been in this place for 38 years. That is a long time during this particular period of time. Why? Most people didn't live beyond 38 years of age. And if you live to be 50 or over 50... You were a senior adult. I think a senior adult is considered 90 now, right? Right. I mean, if you think about it, the, the lifespan, lifespan wasn't very much, very much beyond this during this particular period of time. They didn't live like, like we live today. And this guy's been there 38 years. So at some point, at some time, more than likely when he was a teenager, he committed a sin that brought about a, a, a consequence on his physical condition that brought him to this pool, and he has been there for 38 years. That's a long time. He has set up a home there. I mean, he's camped out. He's got a, a Coleman uh, 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 thing to make food. He's got a, a, probably a percolator for coffee. Maybe a, a little microwave. I don't know. He's, he's set up a home. He's been there 38 years. He's had breakfast, lunch, and supper for 38 years in this spot. He's changed clothes. He's had a bath. I mean, he has he camped out. And imagine all the stuff that someone can accumulate in a particular place for 38 years. And more than likely, he's been there so long, he's got the best spot around the pool. He's got the best spot. And he's... He's grown comfortable because this is his life. And Jesus then, notice it says, saw him. Jesus saw him. The man doesn't see Jesus, but Jesus sees him. It's great to know that even though we weren't looking for him, he saw us. And even in times in our lives when we don't look to him, he still sees us. And he saw this man lying there. Notice what the passage says. It goes a step further and knew. That's a huge word. And he knew that he had already been there a long time. This, to me, tells us that there is a divine revelation here that Jesus already knew that this man has been there the whole time. God knew that the man was there. Jesus, the Son of God, knows that the man is there. He knew in advance this man was there. So it helps me understand that he's not there by coincidence. He's there intentionally, purposefully seeking out this one man out of the crowd to cherry-pick him so that he can receive a miraculous cure. Why? Because of his condition. What is condition? There's a physical thing. But it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. You see, his spiritual condition called sin brought about a physical consequence, a physical circumstance because of sin. You know, you and I were born with a condition. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death. We have a condition called sin because we are rebellious and because by our nature we have defied and disobeyed God, we too have the same condition and 
God recognizes and realizes that we have this condition, and in advance, he has, notice the text, initiated our cure, just as he does in this case. There's an initiative here on the part of Jesus. Notice in verse 6, he says to him, the, the man is sitting there minding his own business like Matthew last week, doing his thing. And all of a sudden, Jesus sees him, approaches him, knows in advance that this man is there as he is coming alongside that particular path for the specific reason. And he speaks to the man. He said, do you want to be healed? There's a divine concern here on the heart and the part of Jesus. What is the divine concern? Do you want to receive healing, he says. You see, there's a human will that always has an effect upon salvation. Do you want to be healed? It's interesting that Jesus asked him this question on the surface. We might think that Jesus is a little bit unconcerned. What do you mean, do you want to be healed? The guy's been there 38 years. Well, that's a, that's a pretty fair question. As I mentioned already, the guy's been there 38 years. He's comfortable. Did you know that there are people that are comfortable in dysfunction? They're comfortable there. Why? Because that's what they know. And to step outside of that is to bring in insecurity, uncertainty, and they, they, they want to, I mean, they're not happy where they are, but they're familiar with it. You know what I mean? Uh, this man had a condition that brought about a physical thing in his life because of his sin. He'd been there so long that Jesus wanted to say, hey, dude, are you ready for a cure? Do you want to leave where you are and let me take you somewhere else? You know, it's easy for us to stay where we are in spite of the pain and the hardship and the heartache. But if we're going to go with God, if we're going to go with Jesus, we've got to leave where we are and to go where he is. And sure, there are, there are insecurities and uncertainties and, and unknowns and, and things we give up and things we must implement, but we must go with God in order to be blessed by him. We, we can't be blessed where we are. And so he says, are you ready for change? Are you ready? I mean, you know, how many times have we been saying, yeah, I'm ready, but we're unwilling to do what's necessary in order for the change to become a reality? Notice the, the man, what he says in the next verse. He says, the sick man answers Jesus, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. That's kind of sad, isn't it? It kind of reminds me, on a side note, the lost people in Wichita and in Kansas and around the world. There are people who desire to be, be changed, to be transformed by the power of Jesus, yet there's no one there to take them the message and to take the ministry healing of Jesus to them. I don't have any help. And while I am going, another steps down before me. I'm such an invalid that others are, are less invalid than me, and they get there before I do. And so therefore, yes, I want change. Yes, I want transformation. Notice the divine concern that becomes a divine, a divine command. He says, Jesus says to him, Jesus simply speaks to the man, and he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus instantly, immediately, as he speaks these words, the man's sin is forgiven, and his condition is gone. Remember, the sin brought the condition, and because the sin has been forgiven, now the condition is gone. Instantly, when Jesus spoke those words, he was forgiven. And notice, after the command, notice the divine cleansing, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. 
He walked. This here is a beautiful picture of our salvation. It is. It is a demonstration of the sovereign grace of God upon the lives of all of us who were in a crowd of lostness, a sea of despair, a sea of invalids who had a condition that was brought upon us because of sin, and that condition brought about consequences and condemnation. And as a result of that, for no fault of our own, because we, are, we didn't do anything. This man didn't do anything. He didn't have faith. He didn't look to Jesus, didn't say that he believed in Jesus. God, in his sovereign grace, just cherry-picks this guy out like he does to us for no reason or no fault of our own. We, we're not special in the sense that we're different than anyone else. I think sometimes we as believers have a tendency to think, you know, the reason I'm saved is because I'm special. I'm more special than, than all the unbelievers out there because I'm, I, I must deserve it. I must be, no. You're no more special to God than any other person that he's created. And you don't bring anything to the equation that merits the, the unmerited favor of God upon your life. It's all by grace, through faith, and that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God in that he cherry-picks us at salvation. We bring nothing to the table, and he sets us free from our condition. And he grants us the cure. Through Jesus Christ, having died on the cross, taking away the condemnation of our sin, and setting us to walk in the newness of life. That's what happens to this man. He initiates the cure. But in this initiation, we notice that there's something that goes on. There's a conflict here with this man and with the religious authorities. There's a conflict that begins to arise in this whole thing. Notice that, that Jesus, in his activity, not only realizes the condition and initiates a cure, but Jesus, I think, with this man, as we're going to see at the conclusion of this story, in which he tells us here that he settles this conflict that's going on, I think, inside of the man's heart and the conflict that he has with his religion. Because there's a conflict here inside of his own heart for 38 plus years. Maybe, I don't know how long, 58, maybe 48. I don't, don't know how long he's been there, but we know he's at least 38 years old. He's been brought up under an old religious system that is filled with legalism and law. And this legalistic law concept has not been able to produce a result in his cure. It has not helped him with his sin. And because of that, as he's walking, as we're going to see on the Sabbath, he is confronted with some legalists who challenge him in his obedience to the Scriptures. Notice in verse, in, uh, verse 9, the last part, he said, Now that day was the Sabbath. Do you believe that Jesus knew when he healed this, this man that, that it was the Sabbath? Do you believe he, he knew that? Uh, Jesus complied with the scriptures. I believe Jesus more than likely was on his way to the temple to worship when he came across this man at the pool of Bethesda because it was on the northwest side of the temple. There was a small entrance that you could get into the temple, and he was there. So Jesus was aware of it. I think the man was aware that the Sabbath, because he's been there for 38 years, he knows when it's Sunday. He knows. I mean, all you have to do is come up here during the week, and you can notice when Sunday is. If you were an unbeliever, a, a, a heathen, someone who didn't believe or accept Jesus at all, and you live close to this, I mean, just in the perimeter, that you would know when it's Sunday, even if you didn't look at the calendar and know what time it is. You would know when Sunday. Why? Because cars start to arrive. People start coming to church, right? And so they knew it was, su they knew it was Sunday. Well, they knew it was the Sabbath. And people were gathering in the temple to worship. So the man knew and Jesus knew and the crowd knew that this was the Sabbath. 
And because it's a Sabbath, the man is placed in, in a difficult situation. Notice as he rolls up his mat and he puts it on his back and begins to walk toward the temple to worship. He's walking away from the pool and toward the temple. He is confronted, notice, with some Jews who say to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. How insensitive are these jerks? Seriously, that's what I want to do. I want to call them jerks. They don't even acknowledge the man's healing. They know this guy has been at this pool for 38 years. More than likely, they have seen him. They know about him. He's been there a long time. They know that he's carrying his mat. They can see that he's healed. They don't ask him, hey, how'd you get healed, man? What a miraculous thing that God has done for you. They completely ignore the fact that the guy has been healed, and all they seem to be concerned about is what? Their legalism. And they ask him, who who told you? Who told you that it's lawful for you to do that? You know, I don't know about you, but I'm cocky enough to ask the guys, tell me what verse that is in the Old Testament that says I can't carry my mat on Sunday. Tell me. They can't quote him one, can they? What is the one commandment that we have in the Old Testament that these guys believed in? What is it? One of the ten? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That was it. It's all God gave us. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, There's no qualification as to what that means. Is there? But man decided in order to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, we need to have some addendums to that. They had what I believe is 39 categories. We're not talking about laws. They had 39 categories with multiple laws underneath them that were all made by man in order to keep the Sabbath holy. God didn't give them that. They invented those. And they were the enforcers. We're not sure who these Jews were. Some believe that they were Pharisees. Some believe they were Sadducees. Some believe that they were just people who were legalists. It doesn't matter. They were legalists, and they were trying to put a shackle or a burden on this man. Even though he had been healed, he was carrying his mat, and it was unlawful to disobey man's law, not God's law. But notice he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. There's a lot of criticism about this guy, but in his defense, he has no idea that it was Jesus. He's clueless. All he knows is that he was in his condition, and some guy came. Good-looking guy, tall, spoke with authority, commanded him to rise and walk. He received forgiveness. His condition was healed. He got up, rolled up his mat, and he's going to the temple to worship and to give praise and honor and glory to God for his healing. He doesn't know who it is. You know, in order to give a good testimony, you got to know who it is that healed you. So, so get some training in regard to who Jesus is and how to share your story so that you can be an effective witness for him. So this guy doesn't know, and they ask him again, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They don't care about his healing. We don't care that somebody said rise and walk. We don't care about your condition before. We just want to know. Now, here's, here's the conflict here. You have a man who's grown up under a Jewish system that was made predominantly by man to enforce God's standards And they are trying to enforce the law. And they believe that by keeping the law, they can cure themselves of sin. Is that possible? Does the law keep us from sin? Come on, church. Does the law keep us from sin? You're not sure, are you, though, really? Because we're a fundamental 
Southern Baptist Church and we believe in the word. I agree with that. But remember we talked about in Romans 7 where the apostle Paul says that all the law does is propel me to more sin? Why is that? Don't sit there and act like you're self-righteous and you know what we're talking about. When somebody has a sign on their, on their grass and say, don't step on the grass, what do you want to do? Come on, what do you want to do? I want to step on the grass. Why? It says, don't step. And Paul is simply saying that our human fallen, condemned nature, when God says don't, we rise up and we say, do. That's who we are. What we were before we came to Christ. And these men are trying to find cleansing through legalism. And and they're trying to be legalistic in, in standards and precepts that weren't even God's to begin with. They were made by man. And it didn't bring a cure for this guy at all. It just shackled him in more condemnation and more guilt and and more and more. And there was no freedom for him until Jesus came. And he forgave him. And his condition disappeared. And he rolled up his mat and he went to the temple. And here these legalists are saying, hey, can't do that, dude. Really. I've been set free from your legalism. And I can imagine after this encounter, he's walking to the temple. As you can imagine, any guy who has just had an encounter with Jesus, he's not fully aware of that it was Jesus. He doesn't know a whole lot about his, his, his new healing and all this. He's, he's totally oblivious of what's going on. And so he begins to have in the back of his mind, you think, uh, some doubts? Maybe there's some confusion? Uh-oh, I've, I violated a law again. Am I going to go back to my condition before? What's gonna, I better get to the temple and hurry up and sacrifice something so I can receive my forg- continue to receive my forgiveness and, and continue to enjoy my cleansing. So he makes his way to the temple. Notice Jesus then finds him. And Jesus, in this encounter, empowers this man's conversion. I believe this man got saved. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of controversy over this between scholars. And I studied this for almost a day, this, this one narrative here. And I've come to the conclusion that I believe, which is the right one, by the way, just kidding, that this man got saved. How do you say that? Well, notice what it says in verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. You know, Jesus knew Jerusalem. They knew that they were not receptive to him. They knew that they were, in fact, they were hostile toward him. And, and as soon as his healing takes place, he scoots off the scene because all eyes are on this man who's been in this place for 38 years and everyone around the pool there who has been gathered knows this guy. All of a sudden he rose up his mat, he stands up and he begins to walk. You think they were flipped out? Why him? Why not me? How did he get his cure? He didn't make it there. I didn't see the water stir. Yet he's, he's standing up and he's walking. Is he a fake? But they see him walking there. They marvel. And Jesus, knowing how the crowd often is, sort of begins to back off and takes a rear exit and lets the man, as he displays the glory and the power of Jesus, walk through the crowd toward the temple. Verse 14. Afterward, after all this took place, Jesus found him in the temple. You know, it's great to know that Jesus sought the guy out. He just just leave him there in his condition, unknowing as to who was the one who brought the healing. He doesn't know that. 
And so Jesus then approaches the guy and he says to him, notice Jesus again initiates the conversation. He says to the man, see, you are well. Huge words. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Interesting what happens here in this encounter between Jesus I think what Jesus is doing is seeking to disciple the man. He's seeking to empower a man who has just been forgiven of his sin and to set him now on a course of walking in the fullness and the enjoyment of that healing. It's interesting in the text that you see that, first of all, Christ empowers him in that he helps him receive his healing. Remember I mentioned that I think the man is a little bit confused now because after his healing, he's been forgiven. He's walking toward the temple, and there are the religionists. There are the church people. They say, you can't do that. He begins to doubt, and Jesus comes, and he says to him, hey, dude, you've been cleansed. He's giving him the assurance of his cleansing. He's giving him a confidence to walk in that cleansing. And he's wanting the man to know that he's been forgiven and he's been set free. He doesn't have to worry anymore about where he stands with God. You don't have to worry anymore. I think sometimes, sometimes we all worry from time to time because we look in a spiritual mirror and we see the hypocrisy in our own lives. And we have a tendency to wonder, you know, is that attitude or that characteristic or that conduct becoming of a Christian? No, well, if I was a true Christian, then why am I thinking this way? Why am I acting this way? Then, then maybe, and, the, and, and Satan comes and he floods, and then we hear the condemnation of the religious you know, experts or maybe some legalist, self-righteous individual who comes and pounds it down on us because they themselves can't buy into the whole grace concept. And Jesus is saying, receive my cleansing. Walk in confidence. Let me give you the assurance to know that you are well. You've been healed. You've been forgiven. No more consequence. No more condemnation. And then he says, sin no more. Is that going to be a reality? No. But I think he wants him to reflect on his cleansing. Why? Because, hey, you were going one way this time and you encountered me and now there's a new way. You know, we talked about this again and I keep mentioning Romans 6 and Romans 7 where the passage there, according to the Apostle Paul in his struggle, he says, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. There is a walk, there is a lifestyle, there are characteristics, there are standards now by which those of us who have been touched with the miraculous healing power of Jesus as we have been cleansed and set free from our sin, that we now walk. Not because we're trying to earn anything or gain any favor from God. It's solely and simply because and out of love for him, we are following him and we desire to live for him. And he's saying to this guy, don't revert back to your sinful lie, but follow a different path. But notice he says, I want you to respect your cleansing. And that notice that he says in the passage that nothing more or nothing worse will happen to you. That's an interesting comment by Christ. And I think he's telling the man, I want you to respect the authority of God now more than the authority of man. You want me to say that again? Reflect the authority of God now more than the authority of man. Because you see, as he was carrying his mat and he was walking to the temple, 
There were those who wanted to be in authority over him and wanted to condemn him, to judge him, to call him a sinner. I think it is here that I believe that Jesus is saying that, <coughs> that, that, that they are no longer your problem. You're not accountable to them anymore. They are not your authority. God is. And only he can condemn you. Not man. That's not man's position. That's only God's. So I want you now to live in a way that you please God because as your authority, God is the one who dictates and determines whether or not you're living obediently to the commandments and live in respect and reverence of him because one day you'll be accountable to him. Not to man, you'll be accountable to him for the life that you lived. And then notice what happens. I think Jesus sends him on his way to give a report to those who asked about who let him do that on the Sabbath. I really do. I think Jesus sends him back, sends him off, lets him go, releases him. And the man goes and he recounts or he reports to the people. And there's a lot of criticism among a lot of scholars who say this man was a stool pigeon. He was, he was a tattletale. I don't buy that because if you look at the text, it says the man went away to, and told the Jews, notice what he told them, that it was Jesus, not it was Jesus that told him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. That's not what he told them. What did he tell them? It was Jesus who had healed him. He was set free from this legalistic man-made thing. He went back to them and, hey, guys, you forgot to ask about my healing. It was Jesus. He healed me. Forget about the Sabbath. It was about my healing. And it was about Jesus. And I think he's introducing them to Jesus. Hey, he can cure you too of your legalistic pharisaical, lost, sinful, damned condition. But all this legalism is not getting you anywhere when all along Jesus is here and he can set you free like he did me. He's empowering this man to go forth in incredible freedom and, and, and as a, an incredible witness of the healing power of Jesus to forgive him and to set him free. So as we close... Let's talk about the activity of the Lord in your life. Christ's activity realizes your condition. He initiated a cure. Your condition was that you were lost in your sin. He initiated a cure when he gave, and he sent Jesus Christ as your one and only substitute, as a sacrifice on an altar called Calvary, where he took upon himself your and my sin against God. Died in our place. And he settles now the conflict that we have between, between the law and between grace. There's no more conflict between law and grace. We've been set free, Romans 7 and Romans 8, to walk in the newness of the life that we have now in Christ as he empowers us to live out our life story and our conversion. He empowers us. He enables us, he equips us, and he sends us out to join God in the activity of redeeming a lost world and recruiting, recruiting disciples for the cause and for the kingdom. Christ is active. He's working. He was working in your life from the moment he conceived of you. There was a moment in time when he was sitting on a throne and he had a conceptual idea. He had an idea. I have someone that I want to I make. I want to knit together. 
And he formed together that, that seed and he planted you in your mother's womb and he began to mold and to form and to knit you together in your mother's womb for a specific purpose so that as he watched you being birthed and as you watched you grow and live, at some point and some time, he, he picked you out of a crowd for no fault of your own. You weren't seeking him. You weren't looking for him. You didn't know him. And he saw you and he saw your need and he... I want, I want this one. I want this one. And he provided a cure. And he settled the conflict in your heart, in your conflict between God, and he set you free. And now he's empowered you to follow Jesus. And as we follow him, we work like him. We live like him. We become like him. And as we grow in that understanding, as he teaches us and leads us and seeks us out and moves us from where we are to where he wants us to be like he did this man, we can go. We can go and reflect his glory. So what's your story today? I'm not, I'm not sure how long you've been where you are. You may be in a condition for 38 years. You know, I know people who got saved at 38, 48, 58. They were lost, hell-bound, didn't care. All of a sudden, boom, they woke up one day as, as Jesus invaded their lives, revealed himself to them, and they were gloriously saved. Maybe that's your life story. Maybe like some of us, your life story began when you were probably in the nursery in a Southern Baptist church. You were inundated and filled with religion. Did you hear what I said? Religion. And if we're not careful, we can be just as religious and self-righteous today as they were then. For it's not religion, it's not tradition, it's not man-made anything that gets us anywhere except by faith through grace in what he and he alone did for us. That's our life story. He is our life story. And it's him that we follow. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m., and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www ibcwichita.com that's www.ibcwichita.com 